Great Commission Conversations, a program where we're discussing all things missions with some people that are giving their lives to get the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Thanks so much for tuning into the program. As American Christians in American churches, we very naturally think of missions in terms of American workers going to foreign fields. The reality is that there is an even larger army of workers that were converted in the fields that are foreign to us who are taking the gospel to places that, in some cases, American workers would have a very difficult time accessing. One of the relatively recent trends in American missions giving is an effort to get some of the wealth here in America into the hands of those national workers in foreign fields. My guest today has been on the front lines of this effort since 1986. John Nelms is the founder of Final Frontiers Foundation, a ministry dedicated to raising support for national church planters. John was raised in a Christian home and converted at an early age. He felt the call to missions at the age of 11. He cut his teeth preaching and soul winning in the jails and on the streets of his native state of Georgia. Brother Nelms has served in various parts of the U.S. and Central America as a church planter, pastor, and assistant pastor. Since its founding in 1986, Final Frontiers Foundation has sponsored more than 1,400 preachers in 74 nations, and these men have established tens of thousands of churches and seen millions of professions of faith. Brother Nelms is also the author of the book, The Great Omission. The subtitle of this book is, Why We Have Failed in Accomplishing Our Master's parting command of global missions, and how we can be the first generation in history to finally and fully accomplish it. The theme of our podcast today and next time is the case for supporting nationals. In this program, Brother Nelms basically lays the foundation for his conviction that the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled apart from supporting these national workers. Today's interview with John Nelms is the first in a two-part interview, so with that introduction, let's get into the conversation. Brother Nelms, in your book on the Great Omission, you relate an experience that you had in Thailand back in 1986 while you were on a trip to see missionary Tommy Tillman. And that trip led to your starting, I think ultimately led to your starting Final Frontiers the same year. So as we begin the conversation, could you tell us about that initial experience in Thailand and how it became formative for your ministry over the last 30 plus years or so. I'd be glad to. I was pastoring a small church in Southern California. And let me say that I was I was never called of God to be a pastor. Uh, at age 11, I was called into missions. But I was waiting for God to give me direction and uh, figured that there are things I needed to learn. So I, I, I became a pastor. Uh, I had worked as an assistant pastor for Curtis Hudson for a short time and had started a church in New York City with some other folks, uh, Brother Max Helton, who had been the vice president of our college. Uh, and then I moved to L.A. and worked at a large church there as their bus pastor. With uh, We had 53 buses. And so I'd been involved in ministry for a long time. But after I became a pastor, per se, uh, like any pastor, I got phone calls all the time from missionaries, and I wanted to help every one of them. Uh, but I soon found out that I couldn't help every one of them. And so I began to try to figure out what criteria could I use to determine who I'll help, who I want help. Um, and I began to notice some patterns. Uh, for example, the numbers of guys who had come back from the field uh, and had gone on 
uh, furlough. But then by the end of the year, they had quit furlough and decided not to go back. And I always wonder why, why do they always wait to the end of furlough to make that decision uh, as opposed to just coming back and saying, look, this is not for me. I'm going to stay home. And then I noticed a numerous numbers of missionary candidates who, had, who were on deputation. They'd never even been to the field. And then they would quit after a year or two years, or one of them was six years on deputation and still hadn't raised his money. So I begin to think, who can we support that I can, you know, they say nobody bets on a three-legged horse. And uh, I want, I'm not a better, but uh, if I was, I sure wouldn't bet on a three-legged horse. <laughs> but I wanted to find a missionary or missionaries that were, had proven themselves, put it that way. And I knew of one brother in Mexico, only about a four-hour drive from where I was living, Don Kaiser. He passed away about a year ago, doing a great job. And then I knew of Tommy Tillman. Tommy had trained me for the ministry when I was in my mid-teens and uh, street preaching, soul winning, bus ministry, that sort of thing. And so I began a conversation with him, and he invited me to come to, to uh, Thailand to see the, the ministry he was doing there with lepers. So... I decided to go. And since I had friends working in Hollywood a few miles away who loved the Lord and wanted to use their skills for him, I recruited some of them to go with me as cameramen, that sort of thing. My object was to uh, make a video on Tommy's work because he was having to go back and forth between the field and the home raise, to raise more support continually. He, he worked with lepers, so he'd build clinics and churches and buy prosthetics for them and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, you know what? If I can make a presentation for Tommy, I can raise that money for him while I'm pastoring this church. And it'll free him up to stay on the field and do what God called him to do. So that was the whole purpose. Uh, but when I got there, Tommy had kind of disappeared. He had to come back to the States urgently. And so we weren't able to film for him. Uh, I went in September of 86 to scout out the land, so to speak. And um, when I got there, I had I came in contact with a missionary and wanted to spend some time with him. And he said, well, tomorrow I'm leaving to go up north uh, to the Hill Tribes to meet with some national preachers. And I had two questions for him. One, what is a Hill Tribe? And two, what is a national preacher? I'd never heard of either of those two terms. And he explained to me, he was from Arizona, I'm sorry, New Mexico. And he said, well, just like in New Mexico, we have Navajo and Apache and Arapaho and all these other tribes. In this country, you still have tribes, and they live up north in the mountains, so we call them hill tribes. And for a national preacher, he said, that's just a preacher like you or me, but he's not an American. And that just floored me. Uh, God has preachers who aren't Americans? How could that possibly be? I wasn't trying to be sarcastic. I mean, that, I was really asking myself that. So I told him, well, I don't mind going along if, if you don't mind me going along. And uh, we went up there, and, of course, uh, at that time, 86, I already had a beard. I'd always wanted a beard growing up. I figured if my grandmother can have one and my mom can have one, I could have one too. So, uh, so I had grown a beard. But the brother I met with was extremely uh, strict on those sort of things. So as soon as we got off the train, he handed me off to these national preachers. And there was three of them. Uh, two of the three had come from the top of Burma. Uh, they said they could see China and Tibet, I think it was, from their front yards. And they were from a, a tribe called uh, Rawang. And they had come there to Thailand 
two decades earlier to be missionaries to the various hill tribes living down in, in Thailand who had not yet heard the gospel. Well, they took me to a village, and as we walked in, you know, we drove as far as we could drive, then we walked down a dirt path until we got to the hills, and then we climbed the hills, and you could gradually begin to see the roofs of houses as you go up the hills, uh, thatched grass roofs and bamboo huts and so forth. And as we got high enough up that we could see people, then that means they could see us. And immediately the little children started screaming and crying. Their mothers were swooping them up, you know, like an eagle swooping up a fish out of the water or something and running up the, the ladders into their houses that were built on stilts for the most part. And all of a sudden men started coming out with these look like swords to me, but they're these long machetes they used to harvest rice with. And they were getting closer and closer as they grouped together. And I thought, uh-oh, there's going to be a banquet here tonight. And I, I'm, the, I'm the guest of honor. <laughs> these people are going to eat me. And one of these men with me looked at me, and I, I looked at him and said, what do, what do we do? And he said, preach to them, brother. And so I, I, my Bible just fell open to the book of Revelation. And so rather than starting at the beginning of the book, I started at the end. And I started talking to them about the the streets of gold in heaven where God lives. And they stopped in their tracks like they'd hit an invisible wall. The women began to come out, the children, they weren't crying. They're standing there listening to me talk to them, tell them all about God and Jesus and the streets of gold and so forth. It was two o'clock in the afternoon, Southeast Asia, probably 110 degrees. And uh, they eventually asked me if I would come into a hut to talk to them more. And so we all crowded in there and I continued preaching through a translator. I would speak English. My translator would speak Thai. And then from Thai, it would be translated into the Akka language. After about four hours, I began noticing some other people coming in the little hut who were dressed differently because the tribes all had their own tribal dress they wear. And another man stood up and then he started translating it from Akka into the Lahu language. So I had three translators working with me, and I preached from two in the afternoon till two in the morning, and I couldn't go any further. Uh, they took me up into a hut to give me a place to sleep, and first they brought in some food for me. And uh, long story short, we ate rice and delicious vegetables, uh, roasted dog, and then we had uh, leeches. I thought they were mushroom. I thought they were shiitake mushrooms. And I always liked those, but I couldn't afford to buy them at home. So I thought, wow, mushrooms, I'm going to eat these things. And they were the juiciest mushrooms I'd ever had in my life, but they turned out to be leeches. It was a delicious meal. But in the course of it, as we talked, I asked them, why were you so afraid of me when I came to your village? And the elders responded was, well, we had never seen a white man before. We didn't even know there were white men. We thought you were an albino monkey. And uh, my wife agreed with that when I told her the story. <laughs> but uh, I asked them, what changed your mind? And I thought they were going to say, well, you started talking or whatever. They said, when you, when you mention uh, the paths made from gold in the village where the creator lives. And that stunned me. First of all, just the quaint way they put it. But I asked them, why, would that, why did that get your attention? And they said, because we know that story. So how do you know? He said, we have it in our own tribal, uh, oral tribal traditions. 
And so they begin to tell me the story how they said at one time, all men lived together in one village and they were all of one tribe. They all spoke the same language. But in time, they began to displease the creator. So he came down from the skies and he divided them into different groups and he gave each group their own language. And when he said that, one elderly man spoke up and said, that's where the tribes come from. <laughs> and boy, I just got a, a quick education when he said that. It just made yeah. sense. And I said, uh, do you know the, the name of the village? And they said, well, we called it, and I don't remember what they called it, but I had it translated later, and it came out to the, the plain of mustard seed. Well, I don't know this is true, but I had been doing a study in, in uh, Genesis, and I had read just a few months earlier than that that the, the, the plain of Shinar, which we read about in Genesis, is translated mustards. And I thought, now that is, that's a little bit more than a coincidence right here. So I said, tell me more. And they said, well, after he gave us our own languages, he, he scattered us across the world, across the earth. And, uh, he, and then they said something I'd never heard. They said, when he scattered us, he gave each tribe a book about him written in their own new language so that they could learn about him. And I asked them, being an American entrepreneur, I said, do you guys have that book by any chance? I thought, if they have that, that's going to be the archaeological find of millennia. I'll use that money. I can finance the spread of the gospel around the world with that one book. Well, they told me, no, we don't have it. They said our forefathers were careless with it, and two dogs got into a fight, and they, they chewed it up fighting over it. And they said, since then, we've lost the knowledge of the Creator." And again, that old fella spoke up and he said, that's why we call ourselves Akka. And I said, well, what does Akka mean? Of course, all this is using interpreters. And they said, Akka means stupid. And I asked, I said, you call yourselves stupid? That's the name of your tribe, the stupid tribe? Why do you call yourselves that? And they said this, because we've lost the knowledge of the creator. Wow. And I thought to myself, I even said to them, in my country, if a man has lost the knowledge of the creator, we call him professor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, they didn't know what that meant, of course. We talked more. I found out that they didn't know the earth was round. They thought, they thought it was flat. They didn't know there was an ocean. They asked me how I got there, and I told them I crossed the ocean. And they said, how long did that take? I said, about, about 22 hours. And they said, how did you, you know, how did you come across? And uh, I started to tell them I flew, but I decided not to tell them that because, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting up in a house 15 feet off the ground. They might demand a, a, an example. <laughs> Demonstration. <laughs> we didn't know what ocean was. I had to find an ocean as a, a really, really wide river, so wide you can't see across it. Um, so they just, they didn't know anything. They didn't have a written language, only oral. So they had no books whatsoever. So the men I worked with were translators, and they ended up translating the Bible for them into their language. It took years to do it. Uh, we paid for that to be done, but we didn't get the copyrights of it once it was finished. A uh, liberal denomination here in the U.S. got it and took out all the references of the blood, the virgin birth, and so forth. So they wow. destroyed the Bible after it had been pro pro provided. But they opened my eyes that day. My life changed that day. And I mean, literally changed my outlook, my understanding, my personality, everything changed. 
when I went back home about a week later, uh, my wife came to me after a couple of days and said, who are you? I don't even know you anymore. And she wasn't being negative. It's just like, you know, you've changed into a different person. And, and I truly had, uh, that was the beginning of my eyes being open to world missions. Um, I left those guys with the national preachers that had introduced me to them. And um, I began supporting those national preachers because that night I found out that, that uh, those guys, uh, they work six days a week out in rice paddies. And then in the evenings when they would come home, they'd pick up their Bible and head out through the trails to find a village to preach at while everybody else would be resting. And each of those men were pastoring six, seven churches on top of working full time, on top of doing Bible translation work. And I asked them, how much would it cost for you to be full time in the ministry? In other words, to get you out of the rice paddy and just serving the Lord full time. And they had no idea because they didn't deal with an economy of money. Everything was bartering. I got a, I got three eggs. You got a bag of rice. I'll trade you, you know, that sort of thing. Hmm. And so we figured out how much, how much vegetables do they eat in a month? How much rice uh, to buy a new pair of sandals every seven or eight months, all these things. And we transferred that into U.S. dollars, and it came down to about uh, $25 to $30 a month. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it hit me. I'm over here trying to raise $1,000 a month for my friend who is perfectly capable of raising it for himself. But these guys don't have anybody helping them. So I decided that I'd ask my church to help them. And we took on the support of six men to start with. I went back about a half a year later, and those guys' ministries had just exploded like a mushroom cloud. They were all over. Within a year's time, the converts from that village that I just told you about had started almost 50 churches. They would train the young men during the day, and then in the evening, they'd go out when the people were home from the fields and preach to the villages what they had learned in their Bible class, if you want to call it that, that day. And they were just starting churches everywhere. Within t The population of the Aka tribe was 600,000 in Thailand alone. They were also in Burma, Laos, China, and North Vietnam. But 600,000 in Thailand. Within 10 years, 540,000 of them professed salvation, had burned their idols, their demon cords, their witchcraft things, and were now worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> in a Baptist church, as it happened to be since I'm Baptist. Uh, so nearly complete conversion of the tribe in a 10-year period. And, of course, during that time, they were also reaching the other tribal groups around them and going into the other countries. So that really showed me that if we want to reach the world, we need to find the biblical methods of doing it as opposed to the traditional methods. I came home from that trip. We went back the month later with the film crew, did the film, went to work raising funds to support national preachers and their projects around the world. So that was almost 35 years ago. It's certainly not hard to see how that would be a turning point for your life and for your ministry. That's just an amazing story. And I, I gather from your book that that would be actually the first of many experiences that would expose you to some mission needs that are sort of out of sight, out of mind for the American church. And in missiological terms, you make reference to the three worlds in, in your book, 
the great omission. And you're clearly concerned that perhaps the neediest segment of the global population when it comes to gospel exposure is the most neglected. The Aka tribe would be one example of this. Can you walk us through the three worlds that you make reference to in your book and how our missions resources are disproportionately allocated to meeting these needs? Yeah, this is a this is a driving factor behind all we do. The missiologists, as they're called, uh, that'd be like a missions scientist, have divided the world into these three categories, which they call world A, world B, world C. World C would be you and I, uh, folks living in America, Canada, New Zealand, Germany. In other words, places that have unlimited access to the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's heard the gospel or even wants to hear it, but they have access to it, unrestrained access to the gospel. They make up 33% of the world. However, when you look at missions monies given in our churches here in America, 80% of the money we give to missions goes to World C. By that, I mean 80% of our missions money is going to support missions projects in the United States, in Canada in England, in Germany. I don't have a problem with us trying to go soul winning and reach our neighbors, but isn't that our job? Why do we need to have somebody called a missionary who's going to come and knock on the door next next door to me? It's my job to win my neighbor to Christ. And so there's a disparity in the amount of where we put our monies. Now, the reason why so much of the money goes to people here is because, believe it or not, 47% of all missionaries live in the United States. I'm one of them. 47% of all the missionaries we support live in the United States. Now, a lot of the missionaries that we support in Mexico don't even live in Mexico. They live in the United States along the border. They feel it's too dangerous uh, to live there, so they just drive back and forth on Sundays. But you, you as a supporting church don't know that. You know that they're a missionary in Mexico, but you don't know that they're only there three hours a week or six hours a week. Uh, so that's World C. World B would be where most of our missionaries go. That's the, that's the world that has limited access to the gospel. It's there, but everybody hasn't heard it yet. That would be places like uh, most of the countries in Africa, uh, places like uh, Honduras, uh, Paraguay, Brazil, uh, countries where most of our missionaries go to. Uh, they, they have the gospel there, but it hasn't penetrated deep enough to get there. By For instance, you may live in Uganda, but you, you live in a village way out from the capital city, and no missionary has ever been there before, and no national preacher has been there before. The gospel is available if you happen to travel to the to the capital. You may see a billboard or somebody might hand you a track, but nobody has penetrated your village with the gospel yet. Well, that's the largest group of people on the planet. It's thirty nine percent of the people in the world live there, and as I say, uh, that's where a good chunk of our money goes to. Not, of course, not all of our money, but a lot of the money goes to that that part. The final group is called World A. World A is the area that we are most concerned with. That is a group of people who have zero access or extremely limited access to the gospel. That would be places like Iran, Libya, 
any restricted country that you you would not want to travel to. Let's put it that way. Countries where it's literally illegal to hear, to hear the, the gospel or they're living in a free country like the Aka tribe was that I dealt with. That's the 28% of the world. A hey, Now, let me let me give you a breakdown of the missionaries when it comes to that. The most needed people in the world are the 28% who've never even heard the name of Jesus. Only two and a half percent of the missionaries go to those people. The second most needy area are the world B, the people who have limited access to the gospel. Only 17 and a half percent of the people of the missionaries go to them. So that means the majority of the missions money you're giving still hasn't even affected the, the part of the world that needs it the most. 80% of all missionaries stay home. I said 47% stayed in America, but I'm talking about all missionaries in general. I'm talking about European missionaries, Korean missionaries, and so forth. 80% stay at home. And that's that's our concern, to try to get the gospel of those people who've never heard it before, instead of continually pouring it upon ourselves as it drips off of us. You believe that at least one of the problems in our missions methods is the misdefining of missions and missionaries and, and what constitutes a a mission field. And I'm not even certain that I would arrive at, at precisely the same conclusions, but you've defined missions very strictly in relation to church planting. How how are we misdefining and mislabeling missions and missionaries in our efforts to reach the world? Well, I hate to be picky, but I would say words matter. And nobody's committing a sin by using a word in an improper way necessarily, but it can lead to doctrinal errors. For instance, uh, when we think of baptism, we think of putting somebody under the water. But when the Catholics, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and others think of baptism, they think of dripping a little water on the head or dipping their finger in the water and touching it to their forehead. They call that baptism. And we make a big deal. No, the word baptism means to totally immerse, to make fully wet, to dunk. Why is the word baptism so important to us, but the word missionary isn't? That's the question. Now, in fairness, the word missionary doesn't appear in the Bible. So did we just make up something? No. Uh, the word, the English word missionary comes from, uh, ultimately comes from the word apostle in the New Testament. Now, that scares Baptists half to death when you say that. I don't mean that we're still living in the apostolic age. It's just a term that was used. It's a special messenger. But if you look at what the work of the apostles were, and then Paul gives us in Ephesians that that was still going on at that time, not the 12 apostles, as we say, but the work of the apostle, which was church planting. Now you say, well, how can you prove that? Well, I try to look to the Bible for proof, so let me do it that way. Uh, what was the name of the church Paul pastor? It's right on the, it's on the tip of my tongue. What, what was that church? What town was that in? Hmm, I, I can't think of it right now to save my life. Why? Because we're not told of any church he pastored. He said, well, he started the church. Yeah, he did the function of a pastor to get a church started. And then what did he do? He turned it over to qualified men, and he left, taking another group of men with him, to go to the next town and start another church. A church planter is a pastor. A church planter has to wear every hat for a time, but you don't keep those hats on. You just, you, you pass them out, you delegate them to others, and then you move on with your church planting head. 
<laughs> on. Um, and that's what Paul did. You say, how long was he at those churches? Well, different scholars have different opinions. Uh, some he stayed longer than others, without a doubt. But if you look at Thessalonica, Paul was only there for three weeks. Weeks. Acts chapter 17, the first few verses, he enters in the town and on the third Sabbath or after the third Sabbath, he leaves. Uh, you have a weekly Sabbath. So he was there for about 21, 22 days. And that was it. Now, people will say, well, you can't go into a town, start a church in three weeks and expect it to survive. Well, nobody ever told Paul that. So he just expected it to survive. And it did. But but let's look at it deeper. It didn't survive just because Paul started it. It survived because the way he started it and the way he left it. He, he came in not by himself, but with a group of people. His Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Demas, and others. They together established the work. When he left, without a doubt, some of them stayed behind. We even read of Paul in other locations other references saying that he's left so-and-so behind and he's calling this brother to leave the town he's in and come over to this town to help out. He was administrating this stuff as he knew the churches had need. But before he could leave, he already had men with him that he was not going to leave behind. And without a doubt, he had young converts from that new group that he had determined were worthy men to travel with him to train them for the ministry, like a young Timothy. And so Paul would come into town with one crew and leave with another crew to go start another church. He wasn't leaving theologians behind, men with uh, doctor's degrees in theology. He was leaving people behind who'd been converted, who knew the difference now between darkness and life. They had, they had denounced all their pagan gods. They had a little bit of knowledge of the scripture. Keep in mind at that time, all they had was the Old Testament for the most part. Uh, but he left them in the hands of other capable men who could continue training them. The same thing he told uh, uh, Titus to do when you go to Crete, to go and, and establish a, a church in every town, leaving an elder, leaving a pastor or, or staff of pastors in every town. So what we've tried to do is duplicate that method. And I'll be honest with you, Brother Lee, I did not come up with this. I observed it by watching these same men that we work with around the world to see how they do it. And these are guys that don't even know each other, don't speak each other's languages, but yet they all came up with the same pattern of how to do church planting. So one day I went out on a limb and I asked them, where did you come up with this method? And every one of them in every country told me, well, that's what they did in the book of Acts. Okay, so why is it the educated financed American missionary doesn't grab that usually. A lot of them do. But the uneducated, virtually illiterate, poverty-stricken national preachers do grasp it. Why is that? And the conclusion I came up with, maybe I'm wrong, is that we do what we're taught to do. We reproduce after our own kind. The only own kind they had, these nationals, was the book of Acts. So they duplicated what they saw in the book of Acts. But we duplicate what we've been taught by our Bible colleges, our pastors, to some degree, and certainly our mission boards. And one of the dangerous things that has happened over the last five decades is that we've literally, as with the word baptism, we've changed the definition of the word missionary. When I was growing up as a little boy, a missionary was somebody who left home 
and went to a foreign country to preach to people who had not heard the gospel. By the time I was a teenager, a missionary was someone who left the home to preach in some country that already had the gospel, but they were going to help out a veteran missionary because he was getting near retirement age and somebody needed to be there to take over for him. And by the time I was a pastor in the 80s, a missionary was generally just somebody who traveled around doing anything other than being a pastor or an evangelist. And now a missionary is anyone who wants to serve the Lord full time doing whatever it is he wants to do. So now what we have, we have missionaries to the county fairs. And now am I against going soul winning at the county fair? Of course not. But why do we have to pay somebody full time to do that? Why don't we just, as churches, when the, when the county fair comes to your county, why don't the fundamental churches get together and set up a booth and have people out there to witness? Why do we have to pay somebody full time to do that? We have missionaries to the prisons. Now, wait a minute. I learned how to soul win in, a, in, a, in the jails around Atlanta, Georgia at the age of 12. My Sunday school teacher would go on Sunday afternoons and he would let me go with them. And he taught me how to witness and win souls to Christ. And in June of 1968, about the time the men were landing on the moon, I led five men to Christ in Covington, Georgia on a Sunday afternoon and haven't looked back since. Again, you know, my feet didn't even touch the ground for a week after that. He never got paid a penny for going to those jails, and he did it for years and years and years. But now you got to pay guys to do that. And I know of men who go to prisons on Sunday who get paid to be a full-time missionary to the prisons, and that's the only time they ever go is on Sundays. Now, I'm not saying they're all that way. Uh, churches need to investigate who they're supporting. The Scripture says, know them who labor among you in the Lord. We need to know who it is. We're, we're actually supporting what are they really, really, really doing as opposed to what do we think they're doing. And so I found out that if you ask people today to envision in your head, what is a missionary? They usually envision some guy with a machete in one hand and a helmet on, traping through the jungle with, with the natives behind him carrying all his boxes of Bibles, and he's looking for a village that he can evangelize. That was the definition or the image of a missionary 200 years ago, even 150 years ago, but it no longer is. One of the things that you do address in your book is the, is the pattern that has developed in, in missions where anytime you have any Christian worker of any sort that is crossing a geopolitical border, now they are designated as a missionary, even if they're even if it's just a matter of their their teaching. They're a pilot. They're a mechanic. They're an, they're working with orphans. They're nursing, but simply crossing a border doesn't produce a missionary. Let me ask you this: It appeared to me the way that you address this this subject in your book that it's not even that you would altogether object to certain financial resources being allocated to some of these projects. Even, you know, there are other, there are other so-called missions organizations that are not necessarily involved in, uh, say, church planning. They're involved in Bible translation, say, which is a very needful work, or, or they're just, they're, their emphasis is on evangelism and discipleship, but not church planting. And so you take issue with uh, with their design their being designated as missions when you've defined missions as as church planting. 
what is a better way to designate some of these some of these ministries so that so that we're upfront and so that there's an understanding of what what we're allocating our resources to? Well, in my opinion, which would take another thirty or forty years to take effect, we should say we should make a distinction between what is a minister and a missionary. The jobs that you talked about, working in orphanages and so forth, that is a ministry. And it's a needed ministry and an honorable ministry, but it's not a missionary. Again, we've gotten to the point that if you need to raise money for what you're doing, you just stick the missionary label on your name and then people will support you. Now, if you say I'm doing it as an evangelist, they won't support you. Ask any evangelist how hard it is to raise support now for their ministries. They can't call themselves evangelists anymore or they won't be supported. It's it's just a, a social cultural change we've had in our country. But if they call themselves a missionary, people will support them because we're taught that we're supposed to support missionaries. But here's here's the crux of the problem. If you're supporting all these things that really are not missions with your missions dollars, then what are you going to support true missions with? Here's an illustration. I try to help people understand. I fly a lot more than I want to. And when I get on the plane, Everybody working on that plane works for, say, Delta, but only one of them's a pilot. It's not it's not uh, shameful for them to say I work for Delta, but it would be it would be dishonest for them to say I'm the pilot. If, if your little child falls down and scrapes your knee, you put a Band-Aid on their knee. Does that make you a doctor? No, you're a mother doing what a mother's supposed to do, but you're not a doctor. If you go to school to study to be a doctor, you go through four years and you go through more years of medical training. Then you go through an internship. You better not be calling yourself a doctor because every doctor in the state will be after you. And so will the government. You're not a doctor until you're a doctor. And that's one problem, brother, we have with missionaries. People don't understand how you become a missionary because they usually see what they think is the finished product. But let me explain to you for those who may not have knowledge of this. If you want to go serve the Lord somewhere, you talk to your pastor. He says, I'm all for it. You've proven yourself. Go do it. He recommends you to a mission board. That mission board will require you to come and stand before them and bring some information like letters of referral and resume and things like that. And then to give them your, your heartfelt uh, explanation of why you believe God's called you. Then they either say, we accept you or we don't accept you. So let's let's suppose they accept you as a missionary. You walked in that building as a layman. You now walk out as a missionary. What happened? What did you learn? What experience did you gain? You are now a missionary. You get on the phone and you start calling up preachers. Now, if if you're listening to this and it's handy, get a piece of paper and a pencil because you're going to want to write this down. You go back home and you start calling up churches asking for meetings. Most of them are going to tell you, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? And so you don't get meetings. Then your pastor starts helping you, and you get a few meetings, and then maybe you get a few more. And then you decide to quit because it's just not working. Did you know that in the independent Baptist world, 43% of the missionaries who start out on deputation never finish it? Now, hold on. They never finish it. But yet they've been calling themselves a missionary and people have been supporting them as a missionary. 
those who do finish deputation and get to the mission field, 75% of those will not make it through their third year on the mission field. Do you know what that means? They usually spend one to two years in language school and then the rest of the term working as an assistant to already established missionary. In other words, more than likely, all they're going to do is teach a Sunday school class, possibly to people who were saved before they were even born, but they're, but they're a missionary. 75% of the few that made it through the first term, they come back for furlough to tell you what they've been doing. 55% of those will never go back. Now, let's assume Mission Board A has 1,000 missionaries. 43% of those, or 430 of that 1,000, will never finish deputation. Can you imagine the millions of dollars that churches gave to those 430 missionaries over a period of one, two, three, and four years? Yeah, the, the statistics are absolutely daunting. It is an unsettling consideration. Almost sounds like a three-legged horse, doesn't it, Brother Mills? Yes, it does. By the, if you figure out then, out of the 428 that are left, 140, uh, 428, I'm sorry, will quit by their third year. That leaves you 142 missionaries. Then they come home on furlough, 55% quit. That means beginning the fifth year of missions work, only 64 of the 1,000 still remain. Now, you think, well, that's better than nothing, but hold on, hold on. Missionaries are required by, by the boards to spend one year out of every five years back here in America. So that means 20% of the time they're not doing what you're paying for them to do. So that drops the number down even more. And then most of those are husband and wife. That's another strange thing to me. Uh, we don't call our pastor's wife pastor, but we call our missionary's wife missionary. Why? because we don't understand what a missionary is. If you divide the final number in half, then what you find out is this. By the fifth year, out of 1,000 missionaries, only 26 of them are actually serving at any given time on the mission field. Brother, that's, that is a scandal. People wonder why I speak so forcefully about this. Well, one, I have the personality of an attorney, so I argue my case and everything. But two, when you look at the issue of stewardship, that means for every million dollars, if we put it that way, that we're giving the missions, only 26,000 of us actually being used for mission, real missionary work. No wonder we haven't fulfilled the Great Commission. And no wonder we will not fulfill it if we keep doing things the way we've always done them. John Nelms is passionate about missions and especially the support of national church planners. I was thankful that he took the time to relate his experience back in 1986 among the Aka and Lahu tribes. One of the great missions texts in Scripture is the Lord's charge in Matthew 9 to pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. If you look closely at that passage, you'll notice that the Lord's command to pray began with his heart being moved with compassion and that compassion was informed by his exposure to the needs of people that, as the text says, were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. In 1986, John Nelm's eye affected his heart, and he developed a burden from which he would never recover. The three worlds that Brother Nelms addressed divided the global population among groups that are evangelized, unevangelized, or unreached. Of course, these are not necessarily biblical categories, and the labels themselves can be easily misunderstood. 
Places that are statistically unreached may not be absent of believers altogether. Places that are unevangelized are not without a growing population that is evangelized. And even places that are reportedly evangelized must be re-evangelized from generation to generation. The real issue, as Brother Nelms pointed out, is one of penetration. It's the extent of meaningful gospel influence and saturation. The disproportionate allocation of missions resources in these three worlds is something that I think churches and Christians need to carefully consider. When it comes to defining the terminology of missions, missionary, and a mission field, Brother Nelms has taken a strong stand and advocated for a definition of missions that is anchored in church planting, almost to the exclusion of anything else. Now, I certainly agree that our terminology matters, but I also recognize that it is a complex subject as certain terms develop conventional usages that often don't closely resemble the original concept. As Brother Nelms acknowledged, missions is not actually a Bible word. Though I would agree that it is connected to the New Testament term apostle, I'd also point out the uniqueness of Paul's apostleship as one born out of due time. There are elements of Paul's ministry and his model of missions that are just impossible to replicate. When it comes to tracing Paul's missions methods in the book of Acts, Paul himself adapted to the situation of each field he visited, and he tended to remain in key places for more protracted periods of time with each successive missionary journey. You can study that for yourself. He stayed in Thessalonica for just three weeks. That's true enough, but I think that that's owing to the persecution that he faced. He would go on to spend a year and a half in Corinth and later a full three years in Ephesus. It is perhaps a troubling development that the term missionary has been defined so broadly as to lose its significance all in the name of fundraising. When Brother Nelm suggests that it might take 30 or 40 years to correct this, he's probably not exaggerating. To begin to label our workers more carefully would require a significant overhaul that would include subdividing and relabeling our giving designations and even our budgets. What I can wholeheartedly agree with Brother Nelms on is that churches need to investigate those that they're supporting. We should be prepared to give an account of our stewardship before the Lord and before His people for the allocation of the limited missions resources that the Lord has committed to our hands. I think this was the motive behind the flurry of painful statistics that Brother Nelms brought to our attention in the last part of the interview. There's far too much waste in this enterprise, and I concur that there's more that can be done to be better stewards, but I'd offer an additional observation. Brother Nelms didn't cite his statistics, but I'd guess that they've been gathered from larger evangelical or fundamental mission boards. In my limited experience in missions, which has more interaction with smaller Bible-believing boards and a good many missionaries that have no board at all but are sent solely from their local churches, I think we're doing better than these statistics reflect. We're not doing as well as we could or should, but we're doing significantly better than this statistical data might indicate. This part of my conversation with John Nelms forms the backdrop for his case for supporting national church planners. I hope you'll tune in for the second part of this conversation to hear that case made. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode of Great Commission Conversations. You can subscribe to this program wherever you receive your podcasts. And if it's been a blessing to you, feel free to invite others to tune in. I welcome your feedback about this interview or any of our interviews. You can contact me by email 
at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's keep doing what we can to preach the gospel to the regions beyond. Thank you.